there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before. And it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected. Other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. The idea of sin is firmly embedded in the race consciousness. To ignore it is as much a reaction as courting it is. There's probably not a religion, a culture, people in recent history or current events that doesn't somehow have this idea of sin hovering over them. The truth is that ignoring sin or courting it, trying to embrace it, trying to use it to your own advantage to judge other people, neither of these things work because we lack understanding. We'll try to understand the meaning of sin from an esoteric point of view. Of course, it's going to strip away the exoteric point of view, that point of view that some people love so much, they love to be sinful, and other people love to be righteous and make other people sinful. But it's possible to increase our understanding by making right effort. Not all effort is right effort. I received an email the other day. It said, It was so disgusting last week how fast it turned to feelings of hate for my friends. And yet when I kept looking at that for several days, it seemed like inside of that sinfulness, there was also a grace there too. Because I learned so much more from the darkness or the inner resistance than from the false happiness. I found it interesting that this, the, the person who wrote the email um, is somewhat, well, not somewhat, is religious. Religious isn't a bad thing, but it can be a huge handicap in this work because it's really a bunch of old associations, attitudes, and notions that it's very difficult to let go of. It's very difficult to separate from them. It's very difficult to get ourselves free from them and become somewhat more objective. Once we've learned religious things, it, it's ritual, it's routine, it's doctrine, and it makes it very difficult for us to begin to free our minds so that we can begin to think for ourselves most people don't think for themselves. Actually, I guess it would be better to say most people don't think. What we call thinking isn't thinking at all. What it really is, is association. It's like dominoes. One thought comes up, it falls over, hits another thought. Another thought hits another thought, hits another thought. And it starts this chain reaction. We could start thinking about one thing in one moment, and then a minute later be thinking about something that has no relationship to that whatsoever. It was just this chain reaction, this arbitrary chain reaction that we call thinking. It's not thinking at all. Thinking is directed. Thinking is something that you have to have some kind of will. You have to have some kind of concentration in order to be able to think properly. Think about this. Think about how difficult it is for us to give up sinfulness. Maurice Nicole said, There are many people who have an entirely false conscience, who make scruples or sins about the smallest things. Now remember that scrupulous means a person who is diligent, thorough, and extremely attentive to details. And so what we have is eyes, scrupulous eyes, that can torture us very much. So this is what Maurice Nicole said. What's the payoff for such self-torture? These eyes that 
can torture us very much. What is the payoff? Why do we allow it? Why will we allow ourselves to be crucified? Why will we allow ourselves to be stoned? Why will we allow ourselves to be punished, to be whipped by these little eyes that want to torture us? We've got to find out what that payoff is and understand it for ourselves. It's not enough to have someone else tell us, oh, this is what it is, or that's what it is. Unless we see it ourselves, it's not real to us. And if it's not real to us, it's meaningless. And if it's meaningless, then we have nothing to work with. The scrupulous eyes accuse us. They find fault with us. Then we fall under their power if we're weak. What happens next? Well, what happens is we become, we become over-scrupulous. Like Shakespeare said, much ado about nothing. It's horrible to become like this. We follow the smallest eyes. We make a part far more important than the whole. We start to divide and see just this side or just that side, just the dark side of ourselves. And we pick at it, pick at it. We allow these little eyes to pick at it and pick at it until it becomes raw and sore. And they pick at it some more until it becomes infected. And then it can never really heal. And then the, the, the whole sickness begins to spread throughout us. And we're in a worse shape than when we started. What happens then is when a situation comes up, that needs bigger eyes in order to deal with it, the smallest eyes take charge of us, and we meet the situation badly, again creating a chain reaction that builds, making it more and more difficult to turn away from it. These little eyes multiply in anyone lacking a broader perspective. It's amazing how many of us are lacking a broader perspective. As a matter of fact, all of us are lacking a broader perspective. We need, no matter what perspective we have, we need a broader perspective. Those who can't see the forest for the trees will remain lost. Those who are so close to a situation, those who, who are looking through their little, the smallest eyes, these little eyes, will never be able to see the bigger eyes. They'll never be able to embrace them. They'll never be able to move into them with their identity. They'll never be able to follow them. They'll never be able to understand them until... The time comes when we can step back and be a little more objective, a little less subjective. You'll notice that I often talk about states of consciousness and all of these things, not in absolute terms, because there is no absolute for us. We're not right or wrong, black or white, hot or cold. For us, there are degrees, 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 so many degrees. What we need to do is see that. What we need to do is accept that. And it's by accepting that that we can kind of ease up on ourselves. We don't expect results. We don't swing on the pendulum all the way over this direction, then all the way to its opposite, then all the way back. A balanced man has to find his, his place in the middle of the pendulum swing. The problem for us is there is no middle of the pendulum swing for us. We go by that middle so quickly to the other side. And then what happens with a pendulum? As it goes to the other side, it stops. So it spends more time on one side, then it swings back, picking up momentum and speed all the time until it swings right through the middle, and then slows up and hits the other side, stops, spends more time there than it does in the middle, and then goes back the other way. Our lives are made of this kind of movement, and so we never really see the middle. Why? Because it takes effort, right effort, in order to get us to begin to pull away from one side or the other side, 
begin to struggle against that swing and find the middle ground. Buddha called it the middle path. These little eyes can be vicious. They can really be vicious when they tear into us. We're familiar with what they do to us. We're also familiar with what they can do to other people. When those little eyes turn on other people, it can be very ugly. We could have a friend one day, and the next day we hate that person more than anyone else on earth. Why is that? Because the little eyes took charge of us and met the situation badly. Whatever the situation was, maybe they said something that we didn't appreciate. Maybe they made some kind of a mistake. Maybe they did something that we didn't expect them to do. And we go from loving them to hating them. This is, again, proof that what we call love on this earth is not love at all. What we call love on this earth is so polluted with self-emotions that it can't be called a real emotion at all. We shouldn't even use the word love, but we do. So in the work we look for conscious love. That is, love that is awake, love that knows what love is, love that knows what it is loving, love that knows what it is we have to do. An understanding of what we have to do, why we were born, can't be grasped by someone living in small eyes. You've got to be in bigger eyes because it's the bigger eyes who understand the larger concepts, the bigger ideas that come from the conscious circle of humanity. How can one living in small eyes expect to become balanced man? How can one living in small eyes in one center bring all of the centers, all of the parts of the centers into proper working relationship so they work properly in every situation? This is what it means to become a balanced man. Once Ospensky asked Gurdjieff what sin was, Gurdjieff said, it is going too far in one direction. I like this because Gurdjieff had an understanding that surpassed the intellect, that was beyond the intellect. Ospensky was a great intellect, and he brought a great deal to the work and a great deal to the teachings. If it weren't for him... I don't know if we'd know much about Gurdjieff at all today. The fact is, is that he was a great intellect. But it was also a handicap to him, as everything is. We have Gurdjieff, who was a more balanced man. And because he was more balanced, he was more misunderstood by those of us who are unbalanced. Those of us who have our center of gravity in man number one or man number two or man number three, but have no balance whatsoever. It's very difficult for us to understand a balanced man because we become scrupulous, extremely attentive to details, the details of the other person. We look at them and we say, well, that, does, that conflicts with that, and that conflicts with my idea of this, and that conflicts with my idea of that. And we end up judging them. And when we end up judging them, we, ask, we end up casting them out of our hearts. Or in other words, we end up not consciously loving them, but unconsciously disliking them. Notice that what Gurdjieff said, it is going too far in one direction. It's not the wrong direction. He doesn't say anything about the right direction or the wrong direction. The moralism of acquired conscience has so little to do with real conscience and the aim of transformation that they shouldn't really be mentioned in the same breath. Acquired conscience is something that's so variable. It's in this country, they acquire conscience about this. It's okay to eat a dog. And in this country, they acquire conscience about this. It's okay to eat a monkey. And in this country, it's not okay, okay to eat any living thing. All of these things belong to acquired conscience. But real conscience is the same for everyone everywhere. The problem is 
Not everyone everywhere is in touch with real conscience. And the reason that they're not is because they're living an acquired conscience, that which they have imitated from the society in which they grew up, the family in which they grew up, the tribe in which they grew up, the country in which they grew up, whatever the case may be. They become nationalist patriots. They become friendly toward their own people and aggressive toward other people. They become suspicious of others who are not inside their circle. And becomes a huge problem on this earth because it's divisive, very divisive. The human machine is complex and it has many centers, each having a specific importance and function. We are unaware of this as a rule. Oh, we know about it intellectually. Someone can tell us, oh yes, well, we're very complex. And we look at ourselves and say, yes, people are complex. Their bodies are complex. We don't understand how all the organs work. We don't understand how we beat our hearts. We don't understand how we circulate our blood. We don't understand how we do this. All of it just happens as far as we're concerned. The body seems to have an intelligence of its own that is beyond us. And so it does what it does, and we, we have no real understanding of it. It's very difficult for us to understand it. But we do say that it is very complex. When we say it has many centers, we know that that's true as well. And we know that each has a specific importance and function, just like the organs in our body. Your heart has a specific importance and function. Without the heart, what are the other organs good for? If you have a brain that doesn't work and your heart is still working, you're still alive. If you have a liver that's not working and your heart is still working, you can live, you can still live. When your heart stops, it's over. So when we talk about specific importance and functions, we can so see that the body has these specific functions and they each have their own importance. We can also extrapolate from that that there are other centers in us that also have a specific importance and function. Devoting too much time to business, for example, is wasting force by going too far in one direction, as Gurdjieff said, as is seeking pleasure or spiritual progress. It's amazing how difficult it is for people who are pleasure seekers to ever think of anything spiritual. Astoundingly, people who wish to develop spiritually find themselves denying the flesh, denying pleasure, when it's very clear that the body does have sensations. Some of them can be pleasurable and some of them not so much. To deny that function is pretty ridiculous. But we do. Why? Because we're going too far in one direction. This is what we call sin. All the functions are to be used. All the functions are to be used. But we have problems when we want something at the expense of everything else. We become obsessed with one thing and everything else falls away pales in comparison to this one thing. It looms large in our sight, in our consciousness, in our minds, until it begins to take up all space, until there's nothing else. A balanced man, however, is able to do everything that his centers make possible for him to do. Notice, I say, he's able to do everything that his centers make possible for him to do. Not all people can do the same thing. Not all people can be great pianists. Not all people can be great orators. Not all people can be great athletes because of the centers and how they function and how they work and which is stronger in a person. There are some types that just are not fit for certain things. There are other types that are perfectly fit for certain things. And we have to go with that because that's the way it is. It's pretty ridiculous to try and fight that not that people don't try and fight it all the time. 
You take someone who's very weak and sickly and small, and he wants to be a sumo wrestler. But he doesn't stand a chance. He's outweighed by hundreds of pounds. But if he wants to do it enough, then somehow he finds his way into the ring. And he doesn't stay there long before he finds himself outside the ring with a headache or worse. It's because he just is not the type who can do that. We need to accept that and go with the things that we can harmonize in ourselves, the, the, bringing the centers together in a positive way. And so that's why I say a balanced man is able to do everything his centers make possible for him to do. The literal will want to have rules by which they can judge. Always the literal-minded people will always want to have some kind of set rules. Well, is it this way or is it that way? Should I do this or should I do that? Now, which is it? Which is right and which is wrong? But the truth is, is this esoteric teaching must be experienced, not prescribed. It can't be prescribed by a teacher. You have to do this. You have to do that. These are things that you must discover for yourself through self-observation. You must see objectively or more objectively what you're like where your weaknesses are, where your strengths are, how your weaknesses are strengths, and how your strengths are weaknesses. All of this must be taken into consideration. It takes time and effort to do that. And as I said, esoteric teachings are to be experienced, not to be intellectually entertained, not to be stored in the intellect so that they can be used later to tell people this or to tell people that and to puff ourselves up with the knowledge. Solomon was right. Knowledge puffs up, and it truly does. He said, with all you're getting, get understanding. Understanding is the ability, the, understanding is the greatest force that we can create in ourselves. Understanding is the ability to put one thing to, with another thing, to put things together properly in their right relationship so that we can begin to see more and to see the whole rather than the pieces, the facets that we see when we look at people and things. Each center has its own mind and bearing on life. Man, for example, purely number three, intellectual, will distort life, always seeking and giving rational explanations. The other day I met a man who called himself a scientist. And I'm sure he was. I'm sure he had a very scientific mind. But it was amazing how talking to him was so difficult. You could not go outside of his purely number three state of mind. He talked about anything at all that couldn't be empirically weighed and measured. He would not even, he would not even admit its existence. So what happens? A man like that, purely number three, his emotional center is going to suffer. He won't be able to feel people. Another may feel people too much, not having proper intellectual center, and thereby... Feeling people too much will lack reason. And he finds himself taken in by people because he feels for them, but he lacks the reason to govern his feeling nature so that he doesn't go too far in that direction. And as Gurdjieff said, sin is going too far in one direction. He doesn't say what direction. He doesn't say it's becoming too intellectual or too emotional or too physical. He says, in one direction. Because a balanced man needs to move in all directions at once. He needs to move forward in all three centers in a balanced way. Very difficult to do, but it's not impossible. A general aim for us, numbers one, two, and three people, is to become number four people. If sin means going too far on one side, then too many sports 
is a sin. Too much food is a sin. Too much meditation then becomes a sin. Too much study is a sin. Too much sex is a sin. But if all things are done in moderation, if all things are harmonized and blended together so that they all pull together according to our type, then we're moving toward becoming number four people. So you have to ask, well, you don't have to ask yourself, but if what you wish to develop, one of the things you need to ask yourself is what is your missing function? What are undeveloped or underdeveloped functions and centers in you? Of course, if you have the answer right now, that's probably not the answer. The reason being that anything that comes that quickly to mind is either coming out of imagination, coming out of old associations, or coming out of the acquired part of us. For example, you may be very good at making money, but what about the other things belonging to life? The first inscription at the Temple of Delphi is, Man, know thyself. Not many people know the second inscription. Everybody has heard, Man, know thyself. The second inscription is, Nothing too much. Since we're seeking to be balanced man, we are working to develop all centers, not just one. And so it stands to reason that nothing too much is going to aid us. It's going to be helping us in that direction. What direction? In the direction of balancing and harmonizing all of our centers so that they work properly together. It's kind of like, you know, with computers, you have uh, computer programs, or you have modems and, and all of these things, and there's something in computer parlance they call handshaking. And what that is is uh, one computer touches another computer or a program or a network or something, and there has to be a handshaking. In other words, there has to be a connection that's made. They have to find some kind of ground upon which they can both communicate. And this is true for us. We need to be able to find some kind of ground upon which all of our centers can be balanced and communicate with one another. From that ground of being, no matter what it is, no matter how low we think it is or how high we think it is in relation to anything else, from that ground of being, that's where we begin to work. To be a one-sided man is not to be balanced. This is what's called missing the mark or sin. The word sin that's used in most religious context really means missing the mark. How often we miss the mark. What is the mark? The mark is to be the balanced man. The mark is to be the new man. And we miss the mark when we're not balanced. We miss the mark when we don't give up the old man, give up the old ways, the old attitudes, the old thought patterns, the old associations. When we're unable to strip those away, we can never become the new man. There's an interesting story that I'd like to share with you. It's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 3 through 11. You've probably heard it before, and if you have, well, listen, maybe you'll hear something that you didn't hear before, and maybe you haven't. Well, listen and try and overcome whatever it is that kept you from ever hearing this in the first place. And the scribes and the Pharisees now, the scribes are those who are the teachers of the law. Those are the people who are copying all of the scrolls, and they become experts in the law. They know all about the law, and they can tell you any little thing about it. In fact, they can argue over commas and dots and spots and this and that. And you've met people like that. Basically, they're literalist. So those were the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, incidentally, you need to understand that these people are not outside of us 
and didn't live 2,000 years ago. This is talking about what's inside of us, that there are scribes inside of you, that there are literal eyes inside of you that will hold, that will hold someone to task, that if they didn't say it exactly right, you've got them now. Well, they didn't say that, so I've got you now. Well, they may have meant something else, and you knew they meant something else, but they used the wrong word, and you used the semantics to come out on top of them. That's a scribe. It's not a very pleasant thing, is it? Then the Pharisees. Uh, The Pharisees, those who do things to be seen by men. They don't do, they're pretentious. They don't do anything. And we're talking about ourselves again. We're talking about the eyes in us that are very pretentious, that put on a show for other people, that look holy for other people. One of the examples Jesus used was the Pharisees standing on the street corner. They would fast, and then they would make their faces look, oh, so drawn and gaunt and sad. Oh, so everyone walked by, they could see that they were fasting. And they would go, oh, what a righteous, holy man. Oh, look at how much he suffers for God. Oh, blah, 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 blah. And of course, Jesus said, well, okay, you got your reward. That's what you were doing it for. That's your reward. You will get the praise of men, which is pretty much worthless in the kingdom. The kingdom, what is the kingdom? The kingdom of expanding consciousness, the kingdom of moving into a balanced man, the kingdom of being the new man. And that's really what we're after. That's what this work is about. So the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now you remember from past podcasts that stone is the very first level of truth, the coldest, hardest level of truth. It's the level of truth, the entry level of truth, basically. Remember that the tank... Ten Commandments were written on tablets of stone. Remember that Moses, when he came down from the mount and the children of Israel were having a big old orgy, worshiping a golden calf and doing, well, all kinds of things that you'd probably like to talk about, but we're not going to talk about now. <laughs> the, uh, <coughs> he, he, he was so furious that he threw down the tablets of stone and broke them. And so this is what the truth, this fundamental basic truth is. It's very brittle. It's very unyielding. And so if it's dropped, if it hits something, it has the tendency to break or to break whatever it hits. So they say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, to take the truth and kill them with it. What then do you say? Well, they knew that Jesus was an entirely different kind of person. He had had come with a different truth, a higher truth, a more fluid, flexible, easygoing truth of non-resistance. For example, he's talking to the woman at the well, and he says, you know, give me a drink. When she comes with her bucket to dip into the well, he says, give me a drink. She says, oh, she says to him, well, how can, how can you get a drink? You have no, ah, I can't remember the story. How can you get a drink? You have no bucket with which to draw and the well is deep. And he said, if you knew who was asking, you would have asked him to give you a drink of water and he would have given you the water of eternal life so that you would never thirst again. Once you drink of this water, you'll never be thirsty again. She said, and literally she said, Oh, then give me this water. Give me a drink of this so that I don't have to come back to this well and keep on drawing and pulling the buckets of water. She took it literally. He meant it figuratively. And that's what we do. But they knew he was like that, and so they were saying this, testing him, in order that they might have grounds for accusing him. Remember what I talked about? Those 
little eyes, those over-scrupulous, much-do-about-nothing eyes who accuse us all the time and accuse others all the time. These are the eyes that are represented by the scribes and the Pharisees. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. What does it mean that Jesus stooped down? It means that he humbled himself. He lowered himself. This is one of his great teachings. He who would be greatest among you, let him be the servant of all. Take the lower seat. Then if the the master of the feast comes in and finds you in the lower seat, because if you took the higher seat, he comes in, he finds you in the higher seat. He says, no, 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 my friend, this is reserved for someone else. You go and sit here. Then you go out to take a lower seat and you're embarrassed in front of everyone. But if you take the lower seat, then the master comes in and he says, no, 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 you don't sit down here. You must sit up here, up here closer to me. And he gives him a higher seat. And then he receives honor in the eyes of everyone else. Of course, this isn't about getting honor in the eyes of everyone else. It's, again, figurative. We have to understand that this gives us a place in our own consciousness. As we humble ourselves and find our nothingness, we find it so much easier to not be so superior with other people, to not be so nasty with other people, to not be so judging with other people. I was at a cafe today with someone, and uh, she was kind of unkind to the waitress. And I said, well, why are you doing that? She said, well, she's only a waitress. <laughs> I said, well, that's not going to work. She said, why not? I can do that. I said, yeah, well, it's not going to work if you wish to develop. Oh, she says, okay, well. Then she, the waitress came back and she actually apologized. And the waitress said, oh, no, that's okay. I'm used to it. I do the same thing. And that's one of the big problems we have. Someone else agrees with us and says, oh, that's fine. You can do that. Then we think we have permission. Not a good idea. You still have to develop. And if you wish to develop, then you must hold yourself to a higher standard than other people hold themselves to who don't wish to develop or who know nothing about development. So while Jesus is stooping on the ground and writing, stooping down and writing with his finger on the ground, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down. He lowered himself. Why did he lower himself? Because he was not trying to show that he was better than these other people by bringing out this stone truth and banging them over the head with it. He wasn't trying to get them to submit. He simply stated the truth, stood tall, stood strong for the truth, and then lowered himself, humbled himself again, and gave them the opportunity to develop themselves. This is what a true teacher does. He gives other people the opportunity to develop themselves. He'll state the truth. He'll state it without embarrassment, without aggression. He'll simply state it because that's what's so. And then he'll lower himself again and give you the opportunity to either follow it or not follow it. So he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone. And the woman, where she was, in the midst And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And it's actually like he was surprised. And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. I have always found this to be very interesting. (laughs) He doesn't condemn her, but he acknowledges that she has gone too far in one direction. She has given too much of her force to this one function of hers that she has. Overusing the sex center, using it in ways that are inappropriate, using it in ways that drain tremendous amounts of force. So when Jesus said, I do not condemn you either, he was saying, look, it's not right or wrong. 
But if you wish to develop, go. From now on, don't go too far in one direction. And so this is the lesson for us, not to go too far in one direction. And that's only applicable if we truly wish to develop and become people, number four people, balanced men and women, the new man. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at SolidRockVista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.